The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow our Facebook page and visit shadygrovepca.org. We're going to be looking at Psalm 90 if you want to turn there, your Bible or your app on your phone. We'll the special music will be after the sermon and before communion. I can remember some years ago considering this psalm when I first began the ministry in the mid to late 20s and Kim and I got married and bought our first house in Greenville, South Carolina. Three-bedroom rancher with a garage for $99,000. I mean, life was good in the neighborhood, <laughs> as I like to say to our family. And uh, we had our first child, Haddon, and um, our next-door neighbors, husband was in his late 50s, I'd say, and he, would, he worked hard. He was in sales, and he would do a lot of traveling in his car, and, and he would come out in the evenings, and he would aggressively smoke cigarettes right off his porch, and you'd see the sweat, the sweat just coming off his forehead. And you could feel the stress from a, the house next door to you. And the reason for the stress was his wife was dying of cancer. And it was just such a hard time. You could just see he was in agony. He loved his wife. And, and so I had offered, you know, told him I was praying, and if, you know, if I could come over and pray with them, I'd like to do that. Well, lo and behold, they, they took me up on it. And I didn't think they were Christians or went to church. And when I went over there, I don't remember if I asked them if I could read a psalm. or what she, she specifically asked me to read. She said, would you read Psalm 90? I said, it's one of my favorites. And I remember distinctly getting into the middle of this psalm and thinking, this is awkward because the middle of this psalm, which I'm going to read, it talks about the reason why life is hard, why it's toil and trouble, and it's because our sin and we're under God's wrath and we're going to die as a result of that. It just wasn't the psalm that I would have chosen for this family. Yet nonetheless, I think she knew better than I of what she needed to hear. And she needed a heart of wisdom to number her days. And this psalm is a prayer in this new year to give us a heart of wisdom, to number our days, to satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. So let's consider this, the oldest psalm. This is a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, and even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger 
and your wrath according to the fear of you. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servant, servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let's pray together. Lord, we do ask in this new year that you would give us a heart of wisdom. We ask that you'd satisfy us this morning, even now with your unfailing love, that we might rejoice and be glad all our days. We ask that you would establish the work of our hands to us and to our children. We ask that, Lord, you would show us Jesus, the only one who has been perfect, the only one who has truly considered the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you. We praise you for the one who has taken the sting out of death, the one who has gone before us and taken us with him. We thank you that we are hidden in Jesus by faith. We ask that you would show us your son. We ask Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, today we're looking here at the oldest psalm in the Psalter. I mean, you think the context is like a community lament. And it's probably, you know, they've crossed the Red Sea. They're, they're you know, they're still wandering in the wilderness. And they haven't crossed over the Jordan to take the promised land. You know that Moses also wrote a couple of other songs, Exodus 15 and Deuteronomy 32. So this is a couple of the the psalms that he wrote, and this one, Psalm 90. And I've been thinking about the psalms some because I was planning on starting to teach the high school youth, uh, which they don't know yet. I don't know if they know that I'm going to be teaching the, the youth. And we were supposed to start next week, so I've been thinking about the Psalms, and I was telling Bruce, I really want to teach them the songs because it's the, it's the prayer language of God's people for thousands of years. These are, the, these are the prayers of Jesus. Pretty amazing. It's like learning sign language. If you learn sign language, you are able to communicate in this pretty much universal language with anyone who's deaf, right? Well, we're the ones who are deaf and mute spiritually, and we need to learn how to speak to God and here in the Psalms, we also learn how to listen to God speaking to us. And so we need to learn this universal language, the ABCs, the vocabulary of the prayers that God's people have been praying for centuries. And so today we're looking at this psalm, and much of this psalm is really a commentary on Genesis 3. Everything changed in Genesis 3 in Scripture. Everything was good. All that God saw after every day was good. And yet Adam and Eve rebelled against God. And in their sin, it brought death. And death came to all men as a result of the fall. And so not only death, but there's also the effects of sin. And we see toil and trouble as Moses refers to it in verse 10b. So even if you do live a long life, it is going to be one of toil and trouble. And so this sermon is meant to give a New Year's perspective and a New Year's prayer. And in this psalm, you get perspective in the first 11 verses. We're getting perspective 
on life and a contrast between God's uh, eternal nature and our finite, how short our life is. You're getting this perspective. And then you get 10 petitions to shape your life of the prayers that are prayed from verses 12 to 17. There are 10 petitions. And in the middle in between of all that, we see God's attributes jumping out in this chapter. You can see that he's eternal. He's the creator. He's omniscient. He's, he's all-powerful. He's a God who brings wrath, and yet he's also a God of mercy and a God of grace. You really get the fullness of his being in this one psalm, but the highlight is the beginning where it just says, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God, in verse 2. In contrast to us that can maybe live 70, 80 years, maybe 90, or if you're Betty White, almost 100. And there's been a few people in the Bible who've lived much longer than that. Methuselah lived 969 years, but he still was a premillennialist, right? He was a premill, just as Enosh was and Jared and Noah, even though they ate 905 years, 962 years for Jared, Noah, 950 years. But they're premillennial in the sense of not eschatology, but anthropology. And so nobody lives a God day. A God day is a thousand years. Because one day to the Lord is like a thousand years. So even the longest people that have ever lived have not even lived a God day. But after the flood in the, na- in the days of Noah, God said in Genesis 6-3 that my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh. His years shall be 120 years. So from Genesis 6 on, there's a couple exceptions like Abraham who made 175 years and Sarah 127. But that's it. 120 is like the Lord has said this, this far and no further. So the average American has a life expectancy of 29,000 days. 29,000 days. Does that sound like a lot? Well, it's less than 560 Sabbaths. You got 560 Sabbaths or 79 Christmas and Happy New Years. There's a big contrast between us and God. God is from everlasting to everlasting. He is before the mountains were ever formed. You see, He's the creator, we're the created, and we have a shelf life. How long will God be around? How long will God live? And the answer is forever. And as a result, God is, you know, this just gives us perspective of when the Bible says God is our rock, and He doesn't change, Well, time changes, so much changed in the last two years in the life of our church, in the life of our families, in the life of our country. So much has changed and so much continues to change and everything just seems to be changing. Well, we know one thing that's not changing. God does not change. He is timeless and he's never out of date. He's the rock. He always has been, always will be. And and the psalmist Moses is writing this. He's saying he's our dwelling place for all generations. And we're going to close our worship service today singing this great hymn that was written in 1708 by Isaac Watts on this psalm. It's his paraphrase of it. And it's, O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast, and our eternal home. Our eternal home. 
You see, we hide in him, we return to dust. It's the language of Genesis that we're going to go down back to dust, but the language of the New Testament gives us a different category. When it talks about being, uh, having a dwelling place and God being our dwelling place, we have a new term for that in the New Testament. It's called in Christ. It's called union with Christ. For you died and your life is hidden with God in Christ. For when Christ who is your life appears, you also will appear with him in glory. And so we have this rock and yet if we're in Christ, we're in this rock. We are protected in the midst of the storms. Verses four to six give us a picture of duration and there's some word pictures to reflect and meditate upon. And anytime you see the word like in the Psalms, and there's a bunch, there's a lot of uh, similes, metaphors for us to, to, to jump out to us. And there's three in this text that tell us that you know, our days are gonna be swept away like a dream, like grass in verse five, and then verse nine, like a sigh. Well, those go pretty fast, don't they? How long does a dream usually last for you? It goes pretty fast. And grass, well, it flourishes, renewed. You cut it, it looks green, and by the time the sun sets, it's brown on the ground. It doesn't last a whole long. It doesn't last very long. You see, the idea is that it's very short. Man needs to consider, when he's considering, giving a heart of wisdom, consider your frailty, consider your humanity, Consider that our times are in his hands. That scripture describes us as a, as a vapor, as this idea of grass that quickly turns. We're like a flood, a river that's heading for the ocean of eternity, and the river's moving rather quickly. How long does that dream really last? Just a few minutes. And so it is with life. And verses 7 to 11 give us the why. It's because of sin that we die. You see, we have a problem. It's the problem that all of Scripture is is wrestling with, and it's the problem we wrestle with every day, is that sin has brought condemnation and death into the world. And even every time we go to and participate in a funeral, and even though it's precious in the sight of the Lord as the death of His saints, every memorial service and every funeral is a reminder of God's judgment on sin, that it has brought about death. There's something unnatural. There's something painful. This isn't the way it was meant to be, but we have rebelled against God and this world has come under a curse and Jesus has come to restore the blessings far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. But man doesn't consider how many days he has. And when times are good, he thinks he'll live forever. We don't count and think about how many sermons have been granted for you to listen to. And how many Sabbaths have been granted to you to take advantage of? You see, verse 11 poses a question. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Jesus is the only one that truly did that. And he's contemplating it before he ever went to the cross. And he's got blood coming out of his head in prayer. He's in such agony. He knows what this will look like. But man knows not his time, is what Ecclesiastes says, is that we don't think about and ponder. This is what Ecclesiastes 9 says about perspective on life. Enjoy life with the wife 
whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the, under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun, that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happens to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. And boy, have we seen that to be true throughout human history. Clark Gable, often called AKA the King of Hollywood, and after making the movie with Marilyn Monroe in 1961 called Misfits, he was telling somebody that I'm so glad we finished that movie because she nearly gave me a heart attack. And the very next day, he had the massive heart attack. And 10 days later, he died before the movie was ever released. Actor Red Fox, who plays Sanford and Son, the TV show in the 70s and 80s, he used to constantly say on the set, I'm going to have the big one! I'm going to have the big one! I'm sure some of you have watched it, you know. I'm coming to join you, honey. I'm coming to you, Elizabeth. You know, and he'd be referring to his late wife. Well, sure enough, on the set, he had the big one on the set and died 68 years old. Pistol Pete Maravich, one of the greatest basketball players to ever play, was, having a, was out on a pickup game. And his last words were, I feel great. And he died of a massive heart attack, 40 years old. Princess Diana's last words when the firefighter was pulling her out of the wreckage, the car accident, she said, my God, what has happened? That was her last words, died at age 36. James Dean's final words, that car's got to stop. He'll see us. And he's in his Porsche, 24 years old, crashed into a Ford Tudor in an intersection. And he broke his neck and a lot of different injuries. When the movie came out, A Rebel Without a Cause, it was one month after James Dean's death at 24 years old. Surely that car will stop. He'll see us. No, he didn't. Many of us grew up hearing the song by Harry Chapin called Cats in the Cradle and the Silver Spoon, Little Boy Blue and the Man on the Moon. When you're coming home, son, I don't know when, but we'll get together then. You know we'll have a good time then. Maybe you've heard that. I'm sure if you've been around, you've heard that song. And the, the first verse is, my child arrived just the other day. He came into the world in the usual way, but there were planes to catch and bills to pay. He learned to walk while I was away. And he was talking before I knew it. And as he, as he grew, he'd say, I'm going to be like you, Dad. I'm going to be like you. We'll get together then. We'll have a good time then. And the last verse, as you go through this sad song, he says, I've long since my, retired. My son's moved away. I called him up just the other day. I said, I'd like to see if you don't mind. He said, I'd love to, Dad, but I can't find the time. My new job's a hassle and the kids have the flu, but it's sure nice talking to you, Dad. It's sure nice talking to you. And as I hung up the phone, it occurred to me that he'd grown up just like me. My boy was just like me. Do you know what happened to the writer of that song? Harry had vowed to his wife that he was going to slow down after the summer so that he could spend time with his family. He'd released 10 albums in nine years. 
and he had a heart attack on the freeway in Long Island. He slowed down at 15 miles an hour and gets struck by a tractor trailer in his 1975 Volkswagen Rabbit. Crash killed him, dead, 38 years old. His daughter later said, my dad didn't really sleep and he ate badly and had a totally insane schedule. The song was about him. It was true of him. You see, man not, knows not his time. Who considers the power of your anger? Teach us to number our days. You know what Len Bias's last words were? I'm a horse. I can handle it. And some other cuss words. No, you can't handle that mound of cocaine. Dead before he's 22 years old and his jersey's retired. Coach K said the two greatest players that he'd ever seen play in the ACC was Michael Jordan and Len Bias. Dead, 22 years old. You see, who considers the power of your anger, the wrath according to the fear of you? Herod didn't consider it in the book of Acts and God struck him down. The people in the days of Noah, they thought he was jesting that this rain was going to come and this storm was going to come. They didn't, they didn't take it seriously. And certainly the people in Sodom and Gomorrah, they didn't take it seriously. Lot's wife looked back. She's taken out. Ananias and Sapphira are struck down. Nadab and Abihu are struck down. You see, God can take us out. The rich fool, we're told Jesus says about him this very night, your soul is required of you. Are you ready to meet the Lord? Walker Percy, in his novel, The Second Coming, he says the present-day unbeliever is crazy because he finds himself born into a world of endless wonders, having no notion of how he got here, a world in which he eats, sleeps, and I'll leave out a couple other words, works, grows old, gets sick, and dies, and he's quite content to have it so. Not once in his entire life does it cross his mind to say to himself that his situation is preposterous, that an explanation is due him and to demand such an explanation and to refuse to play out another act of the farce until the explanation is forthcoming. No, he takes his comfort and ease, playing along with the game, watches TV, drinks his drink, laughs, curses politicians, and now, again, now and again to relieve the boredom and the farce of which he's dimly aware, he goes off to war to shoot people for all the world as if his prostate was not growing cancerous, his arteries were not turning to chalk, his brain cells dying off by the millions, and as if the worms were not going to have him in no time at all. Happy New Year. <laughs> Sobering. But it's actually helpful for us to number our days, to recognize this life is but a vapor, and to be thankful for the times that we have. And so as we get perspective, then we take the petition seriously. There's 10 of them. Petition number one, verse 12, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Petition number two, return, O Lord, how long? Petition number three, have pity on your servants. Petition four, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Petition five, make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we've seen evil. Petition six, verse 16, let your work be shown to your servants. Petition seven, and your glorious power to their children. Petition eight, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. 
Petition nine, establish the work of our hands upon us. And 10, repeat it. Yes, establish the work of our hands. You see, Moses prays this way as he knows that there's going to be results. There's two that's in the text, verse 12b and 14b, that if we pray these petitions, that we might get a heart of wisdom and that we might rejoice and be glad all our days. Isn't that what we need? We need a heart of wisdom. And so we pray, Lord, teach us to number our days. What does that, what does that mean? I think it means to, re, to reflect appropriately that God doesn't owe us anything, that we're utterly dependent upon him. He's the only independent one. Our times are in his hands and that all the days ordained for us were written in his book before any of them came to be, that our existence is a gift. Paul says in his sermon, Mars Hill in Acts 17, that God has given to all mankind life and breath and everything. In him we live and move and have our being for we are indeed his offspring. And so we are not to be arrogant thinking we've got all these plans of all these things we're going to do in future days. For James tells us that if we say today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such town and spend a year there and trade, make a profit. He says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. If the Lord wills, we will live (laughs) and do this or that. And so recognize that life is a gift. But ultimately, he's getting at being satisfied in the Lord and then about establishing the work of our hands. And the idea is that we want God's work to be shown in this world. His power, his glory, we see that in verse 16. And then we want this beauty, the favor is really the beauty of the Lord to be upon us and establish the work of our hands. And I think the idea here is for our work to blend in with God's work. There's these wonderful moments in life when you find out it's kind of like in Chariots of Fire where the great line Um, where he says, Jenny, Jenny, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. You see, he's sinking his work into God's work. He's recognizing God has given him this gift and he wants to live for that glory. What has God given you to do to be a blessing to mankind? Pray that he would establish the work of your hands. And look carefully how you live, not as wise, unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because of the days are evil. Do, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, Ephesians 5, 15 to 17. Like giving us a heart of wisdom is keeping us from sin, keeping us from arrogance, keeping us on the path of doing what the Lord has made us to do. But then very importantly, satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love. You see, that's the battleground of the human heart. The heart wants what it wants, or else it does not care. Emily Dickinson, 1862. Well, who made that quote famous? Woody Allen, trying to rationalize his sexual sin with his wife's adopted daughter. And more recently, Selena Gomez wrote a song entitled, The Heart Wants What It Wants. Well, people say, oh, the heart is good. No, the the scriptures say that's the problem. People say, oh, just follow your heart. Bible says in in 
Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The battleground in the morning is to get our hearts happy in Jesus, to be satisfied and content in him so that we can rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice so we can experience a little bit of this fullness of joy at his right hand and the pleasures that are forevermore, rather than trying to endlessly find it by scrolling through our phone first thing in the morning and finding our satisfaction in all these other things of the creation. The psalmist saying, no, I want to find it in the rock, the everlasting God. We need the satisfaction psalms. And I'll give you 10. You can just write them down. But there's, this is such a huge theme in the Psalms. And John Piper's whole ministry is about you know, desiring God and finding your joy in the Lord. Here are 10 satisfaction Psalms that you should read if you haven't thought about these. Psalm 4, Psalm 27, Psalm 36, Psalm 43, Psalm 63, 65, 73, 84, 107, 119. They talk about finding their satisfaction in the Lord. Why? Because that's our problem. You see, Jeremiah says, you know, be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and honed themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You see, it's the C.S. Lewis's, you know, that great quote, we're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and self and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We're like little children that think that the best eating in town is McDonald's or Chick-fil-A, that we've arrived And Moses' desire is to be satisfied with God's hesed love, his steadfast covenant faithfulness. That's the essence of the first commandment, is to love God more than this life, to, to be satisfied not when I get out of school, or satisfy me when I graduate, or satisfy me when I get a job, or satisfy me when I get married, or satisfy me when I have children, or when I have grandchildren, or when I retire. Moses wasn't finding his satisfaction in the creation, but rather with the creator, not in circumstances, but in Christ. You see, Jonathan Edwards, when he spoke about regeneration, said the first effect of the power of God in the heart in regeneration is to give the heart a divine taste or sense to cause it to have a relishness of the loveliness and sweetness of the supreme excellency of the divine nature. You see, we come to the Lord's table to be reminded of God's faithfulness, His mercy, His love. But we also come to taste and see that the Lord is good. He says, open your mouth wide and I will fill it, meaning I'll satisfy you. That I'm the Lord who delivered you out of Egypt. I saved you, but I'm also the one who satisfies you. And we're called to delight ourselves in the Lord. Come and experience the goodness of God this morning. He's put eternity in our hearts. Nothing else is going to satisfy us. Here we will have real joy, real peace, real contentment, real forgiveness, real love, real soul satisfaction. 
And that was Moses' prayer. Let's make it ours this morning as we come to the table. Let's pray. Lord, do satisfy us with your unfailing love. Lord, we pray that we would know more that your loving kindness is truly better than life. Lord, we thank you for your great, great love for us, for the rescue of our souls from sin, the effects of sin, the judgment against sin from hell itself. And Lord, brought us into fellowship with you. We pray that, Lord, we would enjoy your favor and that you would establish the work of our hands. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.